welcome to the Willie Jackson Experience. I'm your host, the one, the only, Willie Jackson. Oh, yeah. Nailed it. All right, guys. Um, You know, I'm just trying to do the best I can here and just try to, you know, help people out. And, you know, um, I, I, I want to make everyone laugh and I want to I want to just do the best I can. So, you know, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully you guys appreciate it. All right, thanks. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's cool. Huh? Yeah. Huh? Oh, oh, hey, oh, oh, hey. Oh, okay, all right, yeah. Oh, that's enough. All right, you know. I don't need all that, you know. I don't need all that. It's, it's way too much. Whoa, hey. Oh. Yeah. Oh. All right, yeah. <laughs> Wow, all right, that's that's a little much. Hey, 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 all right, hey, that's enough. I mean, dude, I mean, serious. Oh. Hey, really, serious? Come on, man, you know, this, that's, that's totally enough. Really? America metal again. Crazy, but that's how it goes. A million dead people voting for Joe. No, oh, maybe it's not too late to impeach that old fraud and forget how to hate, 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 hate. Mental wounds, not healing, and our country's going down the drain. We're going off the rails on a crazy train. Chug, 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 chug. We're going off the rails on a mighty train. We will be out of service for the next one week. We're fixing the tracks. Get up. Chug, chug, chug. Chug, 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 it runs into a train in front of it. You saw that the other day. Ladies and gentlemen, for the second week in a row, Sabaton, Pearl Harbor, Coat of Arms.
On December 7, 1941, Japanese forces attacked the U.S. at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. The attack claimed over 2,400 American lives and sank multiple Navy ships. But what happened immediately afterward? Well, today we're going to take a look at what happened immediately after the attack on Pearl Harbor. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the Weird History channel and let us know in the comments below what other war timelines you would like to hear about. Okay, so let's head back to a day that lived in infamy. The attack on Pearl Harbor changed day-to-day -day life in Hawaii for years afterward. Within hours, the Army declared martial law throughout the territory, and at 6 p.m. that evening, a strict curfew went into effect. The Army even ordered all public places closed, including bars. But that was just the beginning. The Army actually went as far as to temporarily prohibit the sale of alcohol throughout the entire state. Schools were closed, and all food sales were suspended so the military could inventory the island's food stocks. Gasoline rations went into effect almost immediately. And while that state of martial law was a response to the attack, it would remain in effect in Hawaii until 1944. The first report about the Pearl Harbor attack reached the mainland around 2 p.m. Eastern Time on December 7, 1941. Short and to the point, it read, Air Raid, Pearl Harbor, this is no drill. President Roosevelt was one of the first to learn of the attack from Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox. In fact, it all happened so fast, the attack was actually still in progress as Roosevelt began to weigh his next move. He called Press Secretary Steve Early and ordered him to release a statement to the media, which still hadn't learned of the bombings. Early put together a three-way call with the major news services, and their first bulletin went out at 2.22 p.m. It read, Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Once the news was out, it spread like wildfire. Radio networks across the country even cut into their broadcast to report on the emerging situation. As the attack continued, a reporter with NBC's Honolulu affiliate climbed onto the roof of the Honolulu Advertiser building. Carrying a microphone and a telephone, the reporter phoned in the first eyewitness account of the attack. The battle had been raging for three hours at that point, and the reporter told viewers, many of whom were initially skeptical that the U.S. would really be attacked, that it is no joke, it is a real war. This first eyewitness account was quickly followed by reports of Japanese airstrikes in Thailand and the Philippines. The Japanese were also sending soldiers into Hong Kong to seize the British colony. It was a massive, coordinated effort, and it seemed to be working. Working in concert with the military, FBI agents quickly descended on Hawaii to round up suspicious persons. And round them up, they did. Within 40 hours of the attack, more than 2,000 people were detained. And with the state under martial law, these people had no right to habeas corpus or a trial by jury. One suspect was 13-year-old Walter Oka, a Japanese-American accused of tracking military ships in the days before the attack. FBI agents descended on Oka's home, but once they realized he was just a child, they dropped the investigation, and hopefully felt pretty embarrassed about the whole thing. All the images of the Pearl Harbor bombing were immediately censored. Military personnel seized both still and motion pictures of the attack, and by noon, the Army had blocked the transmission of any unauthorized information about the raid. 
As reports of the attack on Pearl Harbor began to fill the radio, listeners across the country panicked. Among the genuine information was plenty of misinformation, and the false reports only fueled the chaos. CBS News incorrectly reported that Japanese paratroopers had been spotted in Honolulu and had been sighted off Harbor Point. The same station reported a handful of civilian casualties in Honolulu and dive bombers attacking the city from a Japanese aircraft carrier. They also claimed that aerial dogfights were raging in the skies over Honolulu. None of it was true, but at the moment, the general public had no way of knowing that, and the misinformation fueled anxiety about the extent of the attack. As everyone's fear-based reactions kicked in, Japanese Americans quickly fell under blanket suspicion. This made things extra complicated, since in Hawaii at the time, 37% of all residents were of Japanese heritage. These people were heavily scrutinized, and even President Roosevelt promoted the idea of removing all Japanese people from the island of Oahu. However, the military realized such a roundup would be impractical and would affect the labor division on the island. Later in 1942, Roosevelt would force 120,000 Americans of Japanese descent living on the mainland to live in internment camps during World War II. Out of fear, Japanese people living on the islands hid anything that linked them to Japan. Members of the Nakasone household, for example, made sure they didn't have any images of the Japanese emperor. Jane Kurahara, who was a child living in Honolulu at the time, later recalled that she wasn't supposed to speak Japanese anymore saying it was almost like a sin. In San Francisco, Upton Close, an NBC radio personality, phoned the Japanese consulate to find out more about the attack. On the phone, the consul general secretary, Kazuyoshi Inagaki, said the attack was a complete surprise to the consulate. On the air, Close himself speculated that the claim could be true. He reasoned that it was easily possible that the bombing was a coup engineered by a small portion of the Japanese Navy that had gone fanatic. He even asserted that it might be possible for the Japanese government to repudiate the action and repair the injury to America. However, inside the consulate, panicking Japanese officials were burning sensitive documents. The blaze grew out of control and the fire department was called to put out the fire. Americans on the West Coast, the closest part of the mainland U.S. to Japan, worried about additional attacks. On the afternoon of the bombing, San Francisco's NBC station reported that there was no indication whatsoever that any sabotage had taken place or that any Japanese spies or saboteurs were at work. Not taking any chances, in Los Angeles, the county sheriff rushed to Little Tokyo to take charge of the district. According to reports, the sheriff gathered up a number of volunteers and set up a watching post to keep an eye on the Japanese. But they didn't see anything that required any kind of action. In fact, people on both sides of the fence remained calm and decent. Not surprising when you remember they were also all Americans. Meanwhile, back in Hawaii, the military wasn't taking any risks. Worried that Japanese Americans could be loyal to Japan after the attack? the military ordered all Japanese residents to turn over banned items. This included radios and binoculars that might be used to signal Japanese forces, as well as any firearms. Japanese Americans were suddenly enemies in their own country, and with martial law declared, they had no right to defend themselves in court. As night fell on the West Coast, the states of Washington, Oregon, and California, concerned about being attacked, observed a blackout. 
Residents were asked to turn off all their lights once it was dark so that enemy aircraft couldn't identify cities. Civilian radio stations also went off the air, since aircraft could also locate cities using radio waves. When darkness fell in Seattle, radio station KIRO announced that every light of any kind in the area must be out by 11 o'clock. Residents were informed that to test their blackout, they would have plenty of time between the hours of 7 and 11. This time was to be used, among other things, to get heavy black paper and heavy drapes to seal windows. No headlights were to be used on automobiles, and no lights whatsoever were to be showing anywhere on the Pacific coast until 30 minutes after daylight. In Seattle, people took the blackout very seriously. In fact, when it went into effect, a mob targeted businesses that did not turn out their lights, leading to a riot. It began at 4th Avenue and Pike Street downtown. The lighted letters of the Foreman and Clark store shone even during the blackout. A crowd gathered, throwing rocks at the lights. Over the course of an hour, rioters smashed most of the 12-letter sign, then moved on to other lights. Teenager Ethel Chelsvig soon became the leader of the mob. She shouted, break them, turn them out, and asked the crowd if they would really just stand by and do nothing while the lights threatened the very life of the city. Chelsvig was detained, and when questioned by the police, she told them, this is war. One light in the city might betray us. She was eventually fined $25 for disorderly conduct. Newsrooms quickly prepared their headline stories on the Pearl Harbor attack. Typographers searched for their largest typefaces. Around the country, the headlines read, War, and readers snatched up the papers the morning after the attack. The San Francisco Chronicle concluded, If war had to come, it is perhaps well that it came this way wanton, unwarned, in fraud, and under a flag of truce. And in the Los Angeles Times, an editorial read, Japan has asked for it. It was the act of a mad dog, a gangster's parody of every principle of international honor. On the morning of December 8, 1941, less than 24 hours after the attack, President Roosevelt gave a speech to a joint session of Congress. The speech went down in history for Roosevelt's assertion that December 7th would be a day that would live in infamy. He asked Congress for a declaration of war against Japan, and they gave him one that very day. Three days later, Japan's allies, Germany and Italy, declared war on the U.S. The rest, as they say, is history. So what do you think? Did anything about the timeline surprise you? Let us know in the comments below. And while you're at it, check out some of these other videos from our weird history. On the 26th of November 1941, a Japanese attack fleet consisting of six aircraft carriers, two battleships and hundreds of aircraft departed from Japan and began the long journey to an assembly point 230 miles north of the Hawaiian island of Oahu. Their target? The US Pacific Fleet, anchored at Pearl Harbor. Scheduled for the 7th of December, the attack would take the Americans by complete surprise, paralysing their fleet for months and costing thousands of lives. However, the attack would also change the course of the Second World War and spell ultimate doom for Imperial Japan. So why did the Japanese attack Pearl Harbour in the first place? And how did Japanese miscalculation in planning the attack doom them to defeat in the Second World War? Well, to answer that question, we first need to go back to the 1930s. So Japan had spent much of the early 20th century uh, modernizing its economy and its military. So basically they wanted to build an empire, uh, sort of like that of 
Great Britain and the United States. And from that, they could extract natural resources, um, exploit labor and build new trade routes uh, and become one of the world's great powers. But while Japan had big ambitions, there was one huge problem. The Japanese mainland did not have the natural resources required to build that empire. Japan needed to get its hands on more coal, iron, and in particular, oil, to make its ambitions a reality. It was 1931 when Japan took its first major step towards empire building, invading the Chinese province of Manchuria. Now Manchuria had many of the resources that Japan needed and gave them a firmer foothold on the Asian continent for future advances. Over the next few years, Japan poked and prodded its way further into northern China before all-out war broke out between the two in July 1937. First, things went very well for the Japanese. They won victory after victory, all the while carrying out major atrocities like the rape of Nanking and the terror bombing of Chinese civilians, which drew widespread international condemnation. By 1939, though, the war had descended into a stalemate, and as the Chinese grew in strength, the war became a serious drain on Japanese manpower and supplies. To win, they would have to look elsewhere for the resources they needed. Meanwhile, across the Pacific, the US was looking on with mounting concern. After the USA's participation in the First World War, uh, they start to adopt an unofficial policy of non-interventionism and isolationism. So this basically means that they won't go to war for uh, their allies or even get into alliances in the first place, and they, they won't even provide aid either. And this actually starts to become official policy in the mid-1930s when the US Congress starts to pass a series of neutrality acts. But as Congress was passing these acts, uh, the world around the US was getting a lot more violent and unstable. So though America had began the 1930s as a bastion of isolationism, the outbreak of war in Europe as well as Japanese atrocities in China brought a gradual shift in public opinion back towards interventionism. That allowed US President Franklin D. Roosevelt to sign a new Neutrality Act into law in 1939, which permitted the US to supply arms to Britain and France if they paid for and picked it up in their own ships. This would later be followed up by the far more sweeping Lend-Lease in 1941, which included China and the Soviet Union and asked for no payment in return. So although the US was still technically neutral, it was very clear whose side they were on. And for Japan, that was a huge problem. So the biggest resource that Japan needs at this point is oil. In 1939, all but 6% of its oil supply was imported, uh, with roughly 80% coming from the United States alone. Running out of oil would basically spell doom for their military campaign in China, as well as their other territorial ambitions. There were also a host of other natural resources that Japan needed but could only get through imports, uh, and that included scrap metal, coal, iron, all things that are vital to their war effort, and actually a lot of this stuff also comes from the United States. To get those resources and grow its empire, Japan had a choice to make between what became known as the Northern and Southern Strategies. The Northern Strategy was backed by the Imperial Japanese Army and involved taking the oil, coal and iron-rich areas in China, Mongolia and Siberia. 
The southern strategy, on the other hand, was backed by the Imperial Japanese Navy and instead involved striking south into British Malaya and the Dutch East Indies, similarly rich in oil and rubber. By the mid-1930s, the northern plan was already in full swing with attacks in Manchuria and China and this had led to border disputes with the Soviets. These culminated in the huge battle of Kalkin Gol, in which the Soviet Mongolian forces won a major victory. Suddenly Japan had to reconsider its plans. So Japan's defeat at Kalkin Gol basically pours cold water on their plans for northward expansion into Siberia. Uh, as does the signing of a non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Germany in August 1939. When Germany invades the Soviet Union during Operation Barbarossa in June 1941, these plans for an invasion of Siberia are briefly reconsidered, but Japan is bogged down in China. Uh, they're running out of natural resources and, you know, it just doesn't happen. With the army bogged down in China, it was the navy who took up the mantle as Japan focused on its southern strategy instead. This began in earnest in 1940, when in order to cut a key Chinese supply route, Japan entered the northern parts of French Indochina in an agreement with the Vichy French government. This worked in isolating the Chinese, but the US saw it as yet another act of Japanese aggression that threatened US interests in the Pacific. Coupled with Japan's recent alliance with Nazi Germany and Italy, the US responded by imposing an embargo on iron, steel and copper, all of which were essential to Japan's war industries and which were largely imported from the US. But the Japanese did not learn their lesson and occupied even more of French Indochina in July 1941 as a launch point for invasions further south. This time, the Americans responded even more forcefully. So this time, the US responds by freezing all of Japan's assets in the United States. And this prevents Japan from purchasing oil. And right after this, this is followed up by uh, Britain and the Netherlands who control the Dutch East Indies imposing oil embargoes of their own. So in one fell swoop, Japan loses 94% of its oil supplies. Japan was in a crisis. They first attempted to negotiate with the US, who demanded their immediate withdrawal from China and the tripartite pact. But for Japan, accepting those demands was akin to complete defeat. Unwilling to give up their imperial ambitions, the Japanese felt their only option was to seize the natural resources they needed by force. That meant striking further south into British Malaya and the Dutch East Indies, who were both friendly with the US. Japan believed that this time, the US would almost certainly respond to their invasion with force of their own. The Japanese decided then that they had to blunt that US response by attacking the US Pacific Fleet at anchor at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. By attacking Pearl Harbor, Japan believes that it could severely cripple the US fleet and buy them time in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. So not only would they be able to launch their attacks without interference from the US, they would also have time to dig in defensively and consolidate their gains. So this is a really big gamble for Japan. Uh, they don't actually believe that they can win a long drawn out war with the US, so their strategy really hinges on a short war. They believe that uh, the US probably won't have the stomach to fight uh, this costly war against a dug-in enemy thousands of miles away across the Pacific, and they would instead negotiate for peace, uh, allowing Japan to retain some or all of its captured territories. On December 7th, 1941, those plans were finally put into action. At 7.55 a.m., the first attack wave of 183 aircraft appeared in the skies over Pearl Harbor. The Americans were taken completely by surprise. 
The wave was separated into three groups. The first two groups of dive bombers and fighters targeted the hangars and parked aircraft at the island's airbase. The aircraft there were stored wingtip to wingtip to prevent sabotage, but that made them easy pickings for the Japanese. The other group of bombers and torpedo bombers targeted the ships in the harbour, in particular the battleships on Battleship Row. The Americans believed that the water was too shallow for a torpedo attack, but the Japanese had created a brand new kind of torpedo specifically designed for the waters of Pearl Harbour, and it had a devastating effect. Within the first five minutes of the attack, four battleships were hit, including the USS Oklahoma and the USS Arizona, which exploded ten minutes later, killing 1,175 of its crew. At 8.54, the second attack wave of 170 aircraft began their attack. They were also separated into three groups, attacking mostly the same targets. But with the base now on high alert, their attacks were less successful. In the space of just over an hour, the Japanese had sunk or damaged 18 American warships, including hits to all eight of the fleet's battleships. They destroyed 188 aircraft and severely damaged the base's infrastructure. Crucially though, the three all-important US aircraft carriers were out on maneuvers at the time of the attack and escaped unscathed. So because Japan are sort of anticipating this short war that's going to lead to negotiations, uh, their target selection focuses on the battleships, uh, which are going to prevent the US Pacific Fleet from coming out into the Pacific and Southeast Asia and stopping the Japanese. And they're not thinking about things like the fuel depots and the repair shops that are actually going to allow America to pursue a longer uh, war in the Pacific. The shallow depths meant that any ships that sunk, they didn't sink far down, so they were uh, much easier to recover. Almost half of the deaths that day on the U.S. side were from the USS Arizona when it was hit and exploded. Um, and the Imperial War Museum in London actually has a piece of the USS Arizona on display in its new Second World War galleries. And this is actually the first time that part of the USS Arizona has been displayed outside of the United States. Initially, the attack worked perfectly. On the same day, Japanese launched more or less simultaneous attacks in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Thailand surrendered within hours and quickly signed an alliance with Japan, while the US territories of Guam, Wake Island and the Philippines, as well as the British territories of Malaya and Hong Kong, all fell relatively quickly. And on top of that, two major British warships, the HMS Prince of Wales and HMS Repulse, were sunk off the coast of Malaya by Japanese torpedo bombers. In the first months of 1942, Japan followed this up with attacks on the Dutch East Indies, British Burma and Singapore, New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. And just as they'd hoped, the US Pacific Fleet was unable to offer a response. The Japanese then had completed their goal with speed and efficiency. They'd established their new empire and they finally had the natural resources they'd craved for so long. But there was one huge problem. So Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor pretty much has the opposite effect of what it was hoping for. Uh, you remember they were hoping for this negotiated peace. So the day after the attack, President Roosevelt uh, delivers his famous Day of Infamy speech to Congress in which he asks for a formal declaration of war against Japan, which Congress quickly authorizes. So the U.S. is officially now in the war. The vast resources of the United States, power, raw materials, industrial production, all had to be mobilized to meet the demands of total war. 
So support for isolationism quickly melts away. There's a rapid expansion of the US military with uh, hundreds of thousands of men volunteering to join. And the economy is fully mobilized onto a war footing. Japan's hopes for a short war uh, completely evaporate and they've now awoken this, what many people call sleeping giant and they're now committed to this long war in the Pacific and Southeast Asia, which ultimately they'll lose. The Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor was a huge gamble and one which did not pay off. Japan's desire for an empire and the natural resources to go with it had slowly awoken the US from its isolationism. Bogged down in China and unable to attack the Soviets, the Japanese decision to strike south resulted in a US oil embargo, which gave Japan little choice other than to give up its ambitions or go to war. Their decision to fight paid off in the short term, but once the US had geared up its war machine, for Japan there was little hope of victory.